Welcome to the Medicare Meetup. I'm Meg Kepke, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Melissa Cohen. This podcast is brought to you by Arrera Health Group, where Melissa and I are building a mission-driven policy, strategy, and operations practice devoted to making Medicare better. As part of our Listen As We Launch effort, we're meeting with people we know and trust in the field and sharing those conversations with you. Some of the voices will be familiar, but we also hope a few will be new to you. Tune in weekly for fresh content and be sure to tell us what you think. Today on the Medicare Meetup, we interview Mandy Bell of Avera eCare and founding member of the American Board of Telehealth. Meg, we made it to episode four, and I just checked out our downloads. I'm not sure what the exact threshold should be. As we know from our work on payer alignment, definitions are very important, but I think we may have gone viral. (laughs) We should check that definition again. And after pandemic, is viral even a good thing? I think viral might need a a rebranding. Fair enough. But I am feeling pretty good about our meetups. We have met with a policymaker, a disruptor, and a managed care CEO. Each has brought us an interesting perspective on how far we've come with the Medicare program. And I am especially enjoying the variety of answers we're getting to our last question about hindsight. Yes, we've heard our guests muse about pricing. It's the prices, about the role and impact of leadership. We've heard maybe even some debate about the future role of hospitals and how much they should or should not be responsible for overall health and wellness. And I think that's a question of how much of that budget did they get and how much of accountability and how much are they really equipped to do community health work. It, it feels a little bit like radical common sense, and I suppose that's why they say hindsight is twenty twenty. We're all about the expressions. And in Medicare news this week, John Blum will be the deputy administrator of CMS. I'm really more excited about staffing than I should be. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, when you're waiting for like the Academy Awards to come out or something, and you're like, who got nominated? <laughs> it's just really exciting to have people in jobs. Um, so, Melissa, what do we what do we make of this of this pick? I think it's consistent with Biden picks. This is someone who has already done this job and he has all the experience. When we were at CMI, a lot of us were new to the government and John was always great to work with because he already knew the place inside and out. Yeah. And and with proposals to allow those age 60 and plus enroll in Medicare through a public option and the predicted insolvency of the Medicare trust fund by 2026, there is no time to waste. So getting veterans in who can hit the ground running is really so important. Uh, I do think about the balance, though, between having all of that good governance and operations of CMS with bold new ideas. And the response to COVID really demonstrated for us that CMS has the capacity internally. The civil servants there have the knowledge, they have the know-how, and they have the gumption to rapidly respond and to be agile in the moment. And I am excited about that because I think, frankly, that the push for value has languished a bit and it needs a major boost. I think the kids call it today. My son will love this part of the podcast. I think they call it a glow up. And I feel like that's a new one for me. (laughs) I feel like the push for value, it had an allure, you know, 10 plus years ago. It was a club you wanted to belong to. It did not have a gaming feel. It didn't feel like you needed to be in it to figure out how to game your market share. It just had a 
this is something new. This is something we're going to be working on and learning in. And and there's no other place it is happening more acutely and relevantly and with good partners as working with CMS and working with CMMI on new models. And I'm just not sure that the current programs are enough to keep pushing us forward. I, I don't think the 2 to 4% savings they're getting is enough. I don't think the participation they're getting is enough. And so I'm really hoping that you know, together with this competent staff who really know how to work together and work through the agency, there's also some bold thinking. I think about our interview with Sachin and about that push and pull between the incrementalism that is sometimes part of getting things done and the incrementalism that is sometimes the death of us. And so I am hoping to see that CMS and CMMI can kind of harness some of that talent and have some new bold thinking. I think that's a really good segue to our next guest who has been pushing for bold changes in the telehealth space now for almost 15 years, but only recently saw that major uptake from the global pandemic. Meg, can you do the honors? Mandy Bell is the innovation officer at Avera eCare in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, a virtual health system that extends healthcare access to over 450 communities in 32 states. Mandy also oversees Avera's specialty consult, direct-to-consumer, and school health telehealth programs. She began her work in telehealth over a decade ago, leading the quality and compliance function, culminating in the achievement of Joint Commission accreditation, and continues oversight of eCare's research efforts. Ms. Bell is a founding member of the American Board of Telehealth and their mission accelerating excellence in telehealth through education and leadership. Mandy has a master's in healthcare administration from the University of Minnesota. Mandy, welcome. Thanks, Meg. It's so nice to be here. It's nice to be here with you. It's nice to actually see each other, even though people won't get to do that on the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> They'll just be listening. So for my first question, I thought about you as the pandemic started to hit and how the huge rise in virtual care was probably not a surprise to you or to anyone who had been following the telehealth journey and leading the way. But I'm curious, was there anything about this past year with respect to telehealth that really did surprise you? I think it was a surprise. You know, we've been fighting the good fight for so many years, a decade or more, on how to bring telehealth into people's homes and to see it suddenly take off was honestly breathtaking. Um, and, and there were many things that made that possible, uh, rapid relief from a lot of the regulatory barriers that have been in place for years that have kept telehealth to a small department in the corner of the organization. You know, suddenly physicians didn't have to be licensed across state line. That was waived. A lot of the reimbursement pieces were tweaked to allow them to submit for third-party payment to Medicare and other insurers. We saw HIPAA rules waived temporarily. Uh, all these barriers just fell in rapid succession. Every day we were online learning about something new that had changed. That really made that uh, rise possible. I think some hospitals and health systems saw up to 40% of their ambulatory business become telehealth overnight. And the amount of work that went on behind the scenes was amazing. People working all hours of the night to bring that technology into the hands of their clinical staff to train them, to make them ready to see patients the next day. And it was impressive how we were able to meet needs. But I think now it's, it's taking that step back and see where do we go from here? And I know uh, the American Telemedicine Association talks about a, a telehealth cliff where all of these regulations will fall back into place. Those waivers will expire. And what happens to telehealth going forward? I hope we are smart enough to take a step back and really look at, at what worked well 
what needs to be back in place for protection and, and good practice and where we can move forward from here. You mentioned the American Board of Telehealth. Can you tell us more about um, how you, in the midst of a pandemic, also founded a new organization? Yes. So we were on a mission to create what became the American Board of Telehealth even before uh, COVID-19 was on on the scene. Uh, We felt at Avera that we had learned a lot through the School of Hard Knocks on how to do telehealth well, and we were seeing others struggle in that space, uh, struggle with implementation or, or presentation, website manner, as some call it. Uh, and we felt that we had something to share, and so did our funder. So we were blessed to be um, granted a, a large gift from the Helmsley Charitable Trust to start the American Board of Telehealth. And their vision for us was to spread their initial investment in us further by teaching others how to do telehealth. So lo and behold, uh, COVID comes up, and suddenly telehealth isn't, again, that uh, department in the corner, but really something that everyone's very aware of and trying to figure out how to do well. And so we were positioned then to help bring education, uh, just-in-time education forward to help practitioners, and then eventually culminating in a certificate course to help those that are really looking to up their game in the telehealth space, understand all the different facets of how to do telemedicine well, um, and bring that into their group, their practice, or or their health system. And what are some of the things that practitioners need to know when they uh, decide to adopt telehealth into their workflows? Yeah. There's something specific that you, you think these are the top three things? The top three things. I think it depends on your position in that telehealth medicine delivery. That particular course has seven different modules, and I think three or four of them are very much related to regulatory and quality practice or other uh, rulemaking, state laws, and, and so forth. And so just even having people understand that, yes, you do have to be right. licensed to practice. Um, and here's what it might look like. You do have to be privileged to practice in another health, uh, another hospital or a provider-based clinic. Uh, you do have to abide by HIPAA. Um, you need to get patient consent. All those goodies are important. And I think during COVID, a lot of those, again, were relaxed. And so now it's going back and training, and training providers that those will be required going forward. Uh, there's also a lot of education around what is telehealth, right? I think that could be a conversation in and of itself. Does it include emails? Does it include text messages, phone calls, all the way up to that true uh, real-time face-to-face video connection? Uh, And having people understand the breadth of what that is and how it fits into the regulatory context is important, as well as what, what practices need to be brought into that virtual encounter that make it effective. I think we've all learned a lot in the last year on Zoom on how to look engaged and make eye contact with the camera, let people know what we're doing if we're, we're off camera. But for a patient, that's a really uh, interesting spot to bring that white coat into your living room, so to speak, or go into an unfamiliar environment and have that interaction and have that technology between you and really feel at ease. And so breaking down that barrier to build trust in that virtual space is really important. I wanted to ask you what was something that you wish more people understood about telehealth. And you you started to speak to something there a little bit about how many different ways it can show up. Talk to us about something you wish more people commonly understood about telehealth based on your practice and your experience. Yeah, I think from my spot in telehealth, we spent a lot of time looking at is telehealth as good as in-person care and really comparing the two and where there's deficits. And one thing that I hope people take going forward is how has telehealth got its own sweet spot, where it's probably even better than in-person care in certain situations. And I think it's got its downsides too, so I can start with that. I know there's been um, several studies that show because telehealth is more convenient and maybe a little more accessible, 
people might use it just a little bit more often, right? So if you're a 30 something with congestion in your nose and you're thinking, I'm feeling pretty sick, should I go in? It's pretty easy to log in and see a practitioner on your smartphone, maybe a little too easy. So if you would have just waited a day or two, you know, everything would have, you would have been on the downhill slope, you've been feeling better, no need to interact with the healthcare system. But because it's right there, that temptation to click and be in an encounter is stronger than maybe driving yourself to the to the clinic. But I think if you turn that on its head, you think about that that diabetic patient that really does need that coordination with their team and that interaction and engagement. How can we make it easier for them and more convenient for them to connect when maybe they have a little new symptom cropping up here or there, or their measures aren't quite where they want them to be, but they're not sure if it's enough to warrant calling the clinic driving in, missing work, and all of that hassle. I think the convenience can be such a strength for telehealth. Also that it can be a micro encounter throughout your your week or your day rather than this big event that has to take place once a month or once a year. I, I think that is the strength of telemedicine, and yet we put it in the context of an office visit, a 15-minute office visit. And if it doesn't rise to that level, and if we haven't reviewed all the different systems of the body, it doesn't count. And what I'd like people to know then about telehealth is that can we change that context and give that its space and recognize the value that it can provide for patients rather than holding it to the bricks and mortar standard that we've all had so long. How much of that depends on the development of payment models? Do you think that we figured out the best way to pay for different types of telehealth? I don't think so. I think the context that was set up in 1999 or 2000, whenever that was, was to have it be the same as an in-person visit, right? And does it does it come close enough and is the quality similar enough that we can warrant paying it the same as an in-person visit? And so that's the original context. I think with the ACA, we had hoped that these alternative payment models would start, start to incentivize new types of care that could be delivered via telehealth or other digital modalities, but it's been hard. I think an ACO is coming in. They have so many other uh, issues that are forefront that telehealth is something they're going to get to someday, um, or maybe they've got a really great champion that's bringing it forward, but they're also struggling. How do you fit that in with everything else I do. The rest of my day hasn't changed. The rest of my workflow hasn't changed. How do I slot a telehealth patient into my day? Or, you know, these this idea of remote patient monitoring, how do I slot that into the rest of my workflow? So I, I think there's been some strides made with Medicare, kind of leading the way actually here, where they've come up with remote patient monitoring codes, you know, chronic disease management, even some of those new virtual care codes. But when I talk to our practices, it's not enough. It's not the incentive that they're really looking for to drive them to make that change. Um, and it's such a change for their practice and how they work with patients that I think they need a little extra to get them over the hump. And maybe COVID was that, right? Maybe it was such a huge change and we all just figured it out that this will be the sea change and we'll see these codes really adopted. But I'm a, I'm a little bit of a skeptic myself. I think that skepticism is warranted. I mean, I hope what it... You know, after we get through the rush of articles about how the paradigm was upended in the pandemic and telehealth was used, and then we get over the rush of articles and topics discussed about, then it stopped, right? Then people went back to in-person care. And how do you find that balance and equilibrium going forward? I hope more of the stories and the experience come out about what made it work. 
and how did it work? And what more do we need in that space? And I think the initial round of policymaking we'll see around it will not be everything we need, but it will hopefully be the beginning of continued conversation that we weren't as a industry understanding telehealth's full potential and therefore policy, payment, training, education, certification wasn't there either. So you're clearly an important part of that. I want to shift gears for a second and talk about it from the patient perspective. And there's growing concern about the digital divide. And that if, you know, telehealth has all of this potential and can usher forward a new area of access, you may still have and maybe exacerbate health inequities because of the digital divide. How do you think about your role either at Avera or at the American Board of Telehealth and what you all are, how are you thinking about that there? Yeah, that is a big and important question uh, and one that's going to take many years to sort out. But I think it starts with recognizing that even before the, the pandemic, people had carved out populations that were good for telehealth, right? Even in my own organization, we uh, had some groups that um, had more chronic illness and a lot of needs, but was deemed not to be, you know, tech savvy, so telehealth wouldn't be for them. Or they uh, didn't speak English as a first language, or they lived in a part of the state, we live in South Dakota, uh, that didn't have good access to broadband. Or maybe we're of a population where we had assumptions that they didn't have a smartphone or other personal computing device at home. So we had already carved them out of the model, um, even from the get-go, because we were looking for those early wins. Now we have COVID, and suddenly it's not about early wins, it's about serving everyone. And suddenly you you turn that mirror back towards yourself and you and kind of look at yourself in horror, you know, what are, what are we going to do about this situation? And I do think there were some bright spots. Uh, our organization, Avera eCare, works with Indian Health Services, for example, who are contracted to, to provide a variety of telemedicine services, including telepsychiatry, to tribal members that live on the reservation. And they come into the IHS clinic for a scheduled appointment at 8 o'clock on Wednesday to see their psychiatrist. And what we saw pre-pandemic is that we had a, a large no-show rate uh, with that group of patients for a variety of reasons. You know, it's behavioral health, it's long distance to travel, maybe there wasn't good coordination of the time. But once we were able to connect with that patient at home, suddenly those no-show rates uh, plummeted. And we were able to really connect, provide care to a, to a population that lacks access to much of that type of care and really help them get towards wellness that much faster. The catch in that is that often we weren't using telehealth in the two-way video context, but really telehealth in the phone context. And as a telehealth expert, I think even two years ago, you would have seen me out at a, at a state house saying telehealth has to be two-way real-time video to be effective. You know, that video is so important. It lets us uh, have that doorway test. We can tell people are sick or well. We get a sense of their surroundings, who's in the room with them, what they need to get well. Uh, without that, you know, it's just a telephone call and that's not real healthcare. And suddenly here we are in the middle of the pandemic thinking this is how we reach people. And maybe this is how we reach them better than ever. And so one thing that we've got to figure out as part of this health equity is that maybe not everybody is at that same level of tech savviness, but can we meet them where, we're at, where they are and provide effective care? And not that that's you know, lesser care, but that's the care that's right for them in that moment and in that context. And maybe figuring out a regulatory framework that will make that effective and safe and quality is important because, they, because Medicare did allow for telephone 
healthcare to occur during the pandemic, but that is expiring or has expired. Uh, so that's no longer part of the game plan. And I think about those populations that will be left out because of that. I think about the seniors who never had an email address or shared one with a spouse that can't set up their own account on the on the next telehealth platform. I think about the individuals that have English as a second language that can't navigate an app because it's only in English and because they don't see themselves in that app or those populations that just you know, for cultural reasons, haven't had exposure to the digital healthcare space and no one in their community really has either. You know, how do we make it easy for them to connect in a modality that they're comfortable with, text again, phone, whatever that might look like to start to bridge those gaps in care? I really appreciate your candor about that. I mean, it's important that we are in healthcare willing to say two years ago, we had a way we thought about it when we knew what we knew then. And now we know differently and we do better and we are willing to face uh, some different challenges. So, um, you know, I haven't heard a lot of people talking about specifically the, the expiration of telephone healthcare expiring, that waiver expiring, and what impact that has on communities of color or other communities that are underserved. And so I think that's an important you know, health equity message to continue to get out there. Mandy, we are closing um, our interviews with uh, the same question for all of our guests. And it's this, it's been more than 10 years since the Affordable Care Act passed. And we're wondering what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew then? 10 years ago, I was a younger person and I had the good fortune of being in my master's uh, program, I think with you, Meg, or or just shortly after that, and got to hear from some of the brightest minds probably in the country on what the ACA would mean and reviewed all the, you know, sections of it and understood that it was really about affordable uh, insurance access uh, for populations. And maybe a small part of this was delivery, um, healthcare delivery innovation. So, the surprising thing that I I wish I could have told my 10-year-old younger self was that it'll take time. And as much as even folks out in DC are bullish about moving this forward quickly and bringing about uh, delivery system reform, uh, you have to keep chipping away at the current system or you're probably not going to make the progress you want. So be prepared that it's going to take time. But if you're in it for the right reasons, and that is to, to provide access to those populations that that don't have it for a variety of reasons, uh, that it'll work out in the long run and, and we'll be here someday in a talking about telehealth and how to do it even better and through a situation where maybe 40, 50, 80% of Americans have had the chance to experience uh, telehealth throughout the last year. That's a great message. I like that a lot. It does take time. And it's interesting. We've had a couple of, um, in our first podcast interviews, Melissa, I'm thinking about the fact that this notion of incrementalism and pilots and change and time and pace and innovation keeps coming up. It keeps circulating around. And I think it's that you have to have both ends. You have to have a drive to move big boulders and you have to be fearless about that and you have to go at it every day. And then you have to have rear view mirror to say, yep, and that took a whole lot longer than it was going to take. <laughs> and you have to bring the resilience to keep going. And and it's it takes the both. So uh, Mandy, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And for our listeners, if you are interested in more information, please um, go and find Mandy online. You can find her at averaecare.org. That's A-V-E-R-A-E-Care, C-A-R-E.org. And at the American Board of Telehealth.org, American Board of Telehealth.org. Tune in next week for our conversation with Sophia Tripoli, Director of Healthcare Innovation at Families USA.
Well, that's it, listeners, for this week. Thank you for joining us for the Medicare Meetup. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to tell us. Share the podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Arrera Health. That's A-U-R-R-E-R-A Health. If you have questions or thoughts about future guests, reach us at Medicare at ArreraHealth.com. Finally, before we go, have you hugged your Medicare loved one today? No? Do it now. Hugs are back. Medicare is destination health coverage. We all end up here if we're lucky. But isolation isn't the destination we want for ourselves or anyone we love. So reach out. Send a text or send mail. People love mail. And until next time, this has been Megan Melissa with your Medicare Meetup.